Now from the Milken Institute, responding to COVID-19, conversations with Mike Milken. The first genome sequence of the virus that was published was done on Illumina machines. And so we have been working on this outbreak well before it became a pandemic. Genomics can be used to provide that very high throughput screening of healthy people and do it at a regular pace uh, as we get people back to work. That's Francis D'Souza. He's president and CEO of Illumina, a biotech firm that specializes in genetic sequencing and analysis. As the world continues to find new applications for this breakthrough technology, D'Souza and company are eager to apply its speed and effectiveness to the current crisis. He spoke recently with Milken Institute and Faster Cures chairman, Mike Milken. Francis, thank you for joining us today. Mike, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. It's been nearly 20 years now since the first human genome was sequenced, but we're still in the infancy of genomics. And I think for our listeners, Francis, I'd like to start off by you telling us what Illumina's mission is. Our mission at Illumina is to improve human health by unlocking the power of the genome. So we make machines that our customers use, and our customers could be hospitals, they could be you know, cancer care centers, they are consumer companies like 23andMe and Ancestry. So they buy our machines and they put in biological samples. It could be from blood, from tissue, from saliva, and we'll tell you what the DNA in those samples are. It really has been astonishing to see what's happened over the last 20 years in genomics, and Illumina has certainly been a very central part of that. If you think about, you know, 20 years ago, when we sequenced the first genome, it took about $3 billion in 15 years to do the first genome. And today, you can get a genome sequenced in less than a day and comfortably under $1,000. And, and we've publicly said that we are on a march to bring the price of doing a genome down to $100. And so over the last two decades, we've seen an enormous amount of discovery done in the research community. And so you're starting to see genomics actually impact human health in a number of areas, in reproductive health through non-invasive prenatal testing and predisposition testing and carrier screening, but also in oncology where you're using genomics to match patients with the best therapies for them. And we're now entering that era of biology where whether it's genomics combined with immunotherapies or gene therapies, we really are starting to see genomics impact human health very directly for patients. Francis, one of the things that you touched on that we've had a few podcasts is on data. One of the companies was Tempest that is taking both the biological data and the clinical data and trying to figure out what is the best treatment for an individual. You are central to those efforts. Talk a little bit about the process. One of the things that we have learned is that there is enormous amount of data that will be generated through genomics. And that's because if you look at a human genome, each of us has 3 billion base pairs that have to be sequenced. You know, and that generates a lot of data per sequence that then has to be connected to clinical data, imaging or, or other digital data sources. And all of that has to be brought together to try and understand how they all relate. So it's, in some sense, it's a, it's a ginormous data problem. Well, it doesn't just start and end with the genome. Over the last three decades, particularly, we've been very focused on the microbiome and measuring the type of bacteria and good bacteria preventing you from disease or having less of a reaction maybe to this virus. We can now look at this information 
and tell what happens to your body when you eat different foods. We also have treatments now where we've taken good bacteria from one human being and put it in another and found very positive outcomes for many diseases. When we talk about sequencing, how many different things do you believe we could sequence in a human being? From our base level human genome, we can understand our predisposition to a, a number of disease states. And you know, if we think about diseases today, uh, you know, we believe that you know, 95% of all human diseases have a genetic component. And yet today we only understand 15%. And so there's still a lot we have to learn about just starting from a base level genome. How does that alter a person's risk of getting all these different human diseases? Beyond that, though, as you point out, there are a number of other factors that differentially determine how that genome converts into diseases. One area that's very exciting that you touched on is the area of the microbiome. We know there are probably at least 10 times as many genomes uh, affecting your body as are beyond just your own human genome. And we know in a number of cases, a disturbance in your gut flora does result in impacting your human health. And as you pointed out, there are a couple of areas where it's then led to treatments. That's one area. Another area that's incredibly exciting is that although you have a base level human genome, you know, those genomes are expressed differently throughout your body. And so you have really exciting initiatives like the Human Cell Atlas, where we're trying to understand what makes an eye cell different from a cell in the lung, even though they both have the same genome. What proteins are expressed differently between the two? Then you add infections, you know, created by pathogens. There's a lot of research happening around the coronavirus that, that we're dealing with. One, understanding it and its mechanism of attack and what type of cells it attacks, what proteins it needs for its mechanisms. But there's a lot of work also going on on the human side. Why do some people seem to get a very serious case of the disease, whereas for some people it's very benign? And so there's a lot of research happening there to understand the genome of the virus, the host genome, and the interaction between the two. Francis, a number of months ago, as I became concerned with what was going on in China and the potential to spread around the world, we called and asked what could Illumina do in diagnostic testing? What could the company do in screening strategies and methodologies? How has the pace and approach of Illumina changed since this coronavirus outbreak? The coronavirus outbreak has really accelerated you know, everyone's thinking around you know, how we can leverage genomics to combat this pandemic. What we'd like to do is be able to understand which patients are the most vulnerable in the population based on their genome and protect those patients. In addition, there's work going on to use genomics to provide high testing capacity to say, is there a way we can leverage these genomic machines to deliver high throughput testing into the market? Beyond that, there is a need for a global surveillance network. And what that would allow us to do is help us understand how the virus is spreading around the world and within a community. And that's important for policy decisions. But if you look forward, what the global surveillance network will allow us to do is it'll allow us to identify the next pandemic much more quickly. And that could be true whether it was a virus outbreak, like the one we're dealing with today, if it was antimicrobial resistance, or if it was even a bioterror attack. And by identifying this early, you can move very quickly to containment. And that is very, very important in, in dealing with the pandemic. And then there's a lot of work happening right now to leverage genomics as part of a screening strategy to get the economy back to work. 
And so we're talking to companies, we're talking to governments around how do you do mass screening of healthy people so that you can feel confident that they're not carrying the pathogen back into the workplace. And so genomics can be used to provide that very high throughput screening of healthy people and do it at a regular pace uh, as we get people back to work. Francis, there's been a lot of discussion about how the virus is not mutating as fast as others. Why is this important? Can you explain to our listeners why the mutations and monitoring the mutations of this virus are so key? First of all, understanding the mutations gives you a sense for the geographic spread of the virus. Equally importantly, though, it allows you to understand whether the diagnostics you're using to tell whether somebody has the virus or not will continue to work. Similarly, by understanding how a virus is mutating, you can watch to see whether the therapies you're using will be effective or will continue to be effective. And so for all those reasons, it's really important that we continue to track the rate of mutations in this virus. Now, this virus mutates about the same as other coronaviruses, to the best of our understanding so far from the data, which is a lower mutation rate than influenza, for example. So Francis, you also spoke about high capacity testing. Do we have it in the United States? And if not, when will we have it in the United States? We're starting to put into place the capacity we need for diagnostics. So if somebody has symptoms and you wanna know whether they have the disease or not, there's a lot of work going on right now to put that diagnostic capacity in place. And there's still work to do to, to make sure that that diagnostic capacity exists throughout the country. But if you think about what it will take to put 100 million plus people back to work in this country and a much larger number back to work around the world, then you're talking about needing to do you know, millions of tests uh, in a week. And so that still needs to be put into place. And that's going to have to come in as quickly as possible, but certainly it'll come in later this year. Francis, one of the reasons I turned to you a number of months ago in your company to try to see how you could help in this coronavirus crisis was that you were the leader in the world in this area of sequencing. Uh, give us a feel of your worldwide customers today. We've really seen the global markets emerge to be a much bigger part of our business in the last five to 10 years. The big applications for genomics are in research. So there's a number of our customers that are funded by government research dollars. In addition to that, we're seeing clinical markets like cancer and cancer therapy selection uh, in reproductive health. There's a growing application for genomics in non-invasive prenatal testing. There's a, a demand for genomics in carrier screening as people think about having a child. We're also seeing uh, emergence of a market around or a need around genetic disease testing. So we know today, for example, that 5% of all births result in a child that has some kind of genetic disease. And even here in the U.S., the state of the art is that you know, that child and that family will go on a five to seven year diagnostic odyssey looking for a diagnosis. Uh, that's incredibly difficult, as you can imagine, for the child and, and painful in a lot of cases. It's incredibly stressful for the family, and it's financially very difficult. About 10% of those families end up going bankrupt because of this medical odyssey. What we know today, though, even with today's technology, is that if that baby was sequenced within days of birth, in some cases, up to 50% of the time, you can actually get a diagnosis right there. And in some cases, you can do an intervention to actually help 
prevent the development of the condition. Less than 1% of kids with genetic diseases have ever been sequenced. But I think if you look forward, you know, we're going to see a, a much bigger adoption there. Let me turn back to the coronavirus. The world has been dependent on your ability to create these machines to do research. How have you dealt with this virus and your own workforce? Our first priority has been to focus on the health and safety of, of our employees and also to live up to the commitments that we've made to partners and customers, because a lot of them are doing essential work to fight this pandemic. About 25 to 30 percent of our workforce continues to come into our facilities, and that's because they're actually building the products that we're selling to our customers, or you know their work uh, is essential and requires them to access you know the lab, for example. We've put a number of measures into place, including you know personal protective equipment, installing thermal scanners at doors, and enforcing social distancing. We've upped the level of deep cleaning we do at our facilities, and we continue to actively monitor the community in which each of those facilities is based in. For our employees working from home, we've done a number of things around upgrading the IT infrastructure, increasing bandwidth. Uh, making sure they have access to equipment to work from home. And overall, although it's been challenging and it's been a big change for people, I've been incredibly inspired by how the whole company has rallied and is still continuing to deliver this essential work. As we think about bioscience being the defense companies of the 21st century, we've been talking about data storage and the idea that you might be able to store everything that's ever been uh, recorded in the world on some strands of DNA and fit in a shoebox. Talk a little bit about the process. If we look at, you know, the different ways that we store media today, uh, whether it's on tape or in memory chips, one of the challenges that we're grappling with is that the media itself degenerates over time. And if you talk to people who run large data centers, they'll tell you that they spend a bunch of their time just replacing spindles, you know, in the drives or re-imaging uh, tapes because the tapes are deteriorating. And one of the things we've realized is that, well, one of the most stable medium that nature has perfected over hundreds of millions of years is DNA. The DNA has an incredible capacity to be stored uh, for an extraordinarily long time. Another challenge that we have in storing data today is that the mechanisms we use to read the data become obsolete. And anybody here who has looked for a way to read a floppy drive or a tape drive knows exactly what I'm talking about, or even a CD-ROM, right? It's very difficult to get access to reading tools that we were using a decade ago or two or three decades ago, whereas we know we will always be able to read DNA. And so those are the two big advantages. And, and the fact that you can do it so extraordinarily cheaply has created a bunch of work around how do we use DNA as a storage mechanism? And I believe it'll ultimately happen. There's still work to be done to get there, but DNA has been optimized by nature to be the best storage medium out there. And it's only a matter of time before we use it ourselves for the data that we generate. Francis, when did you realize coronavirus had the risk of becoming a pandemic? It was mid-March by the time the World Health Organization declared it a pandemic. When did you and your team begin to focus on this? We at Illumina were called in uh, to deal with it from the very beginning in December uh, of 2019 by the Chinese CDC. 
And so we were working with the Chinese CDC starting then. The first uh, genome sequence of the virus that was published on January 12th online was done on Illumina machines. And so we have been working on this outbreak well before it became an epidemic, well before it became a pandemic. We are currently working with CDCs around the world. We are working with researchers around the world, with hospitals around the world now on a number of aspects of it. We're continuing to monitor it from a surveillance perspective, uh, like we did uh, at the very beginning. We are helping our customers sequence the genome and publish those genomes publicly uh, in a tool called GISAID so that anybody around the world can access the genomes and understand how the virus is spreading and how it's evolving. And, you know, we're currently involved in surveillance and in, in screening in testing and in the research activities associated with understanding how the virus acts. Well, Francis, I want to thank you for joining us today. I also want to thank you and your team for being so responsive when I called a number of months ago out of the fear that this virus was going to become a pandemic. And we look forward to seeing what you can do in the future. All the best. I thank you for having me on today. Uh, thank you for all the work you do. And thank you for your continued support of the work we do at Illumina. Find more episodes on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or milkeninstitute.org slash podcast, where you'll also find the latest COVID-19 updates. Until next time, stay safe and healthy.